So please open your Bibles to Psalm 66. Psalm 66. The story's been told about a, a man who went and, and started taking voice lessons. And it was a well-respected uh, vocalist that, that he was getting lessons from. They were quite expensive. And after a few lessons, uh, the man wasn't that great, and, uh, and, but was trying really hard. And the, the music teacher said, now, let me just understand, why are you wanting to take these voice lessons? Um, are, you, are you wanting to become a, a musician? And, and the man said, no, no. And he said, well, you know, are you, are you, is there a special occasion you're hoping to sing for soon? And the man said, no. And he said, well, why are you taking these voice lessons? And he said, well, for singing in church. And he said, oh, oh, so you're, are you in the choir? He said, no. He said, well, are you, are you going to be singing a solo or with a, a quartet or something? He said, no. He said, well, help me understand, why do you need voice lessons to sing in church? He said, well, I'm, I'm just singing in the congregation. I'm just singing in worship on Sunday mornings. And the choir just said, well, you're paying a lot of money for these lessons. Why do you need to take lessons to sing in the congregation? And the man said, I just want to make God's praise glorious. Thankfully, we can do that without being able to carry a tune in a bucket. Amen? But what devotion, what dedication this man had. He took worship that seriously. This morning as we look at Psalm 66, it will help us to discover how we can make God's praise glorious. And we're going to take it just a stanza at a time. You'll notice in your Bible, you know, in, in the Psalms, you'll see sort of a break in Psalm 66. After some of them it has the word Selah. Um, which we're not sure exactly what that means. It's probably some kind of a musical uh, term that they would have understood back then. But, but we're going to look at each of these stanzas, about four verses apiece, and see what each of those teach us about how to make God's praise glorious. And the first way we make God's praise glorious is we make God's praise glorious through worship that sings, as we've been doing this morning. Look with me at verse 1, Psalm 66, 1. Shout with joy to God, all the earth, Sing the glory of His name. Make His praise glorious. Say to God, How awesome are your deeds! So great is your power that your enemies cringe before you. All the earth bows down to you. They sing praise to you. They sing praise to your name. This first stanza is a public call to worship. And it's a call to worship that's extended to all the earth. Now, in this stanza, there are three commands, three imperatives. Shout, which we'll look at later. Sing and say. Three commands in this stanza. Shout, sing, and say. And I want us to focus on singing for the glory of God's name first and, and what we are to say to God, what the content of our songs should be. Now, our worship song, song should, first of all, praise God's great name. Praise God's great name. Now, when we hear the name of God in the Bible, name represents God's presence. His name represents God's power. It represents God's person. So to call upon God's name is to call upon Him. To praise God's name is to praise Him for who He is. And this tells us that our worship should focus on the greatness and glory of God's name as we sing about His holy attributes, as we sing about His amazing 
characteristics and qualities. I think about some of the songs that we sing about that. You're a good, good Father. That's who you are. That's who you are. We are praising the name of our God. Great is Thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with Thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. Again, we're praising the qualities. We're acknowledging the attributes of God when we sing holy, 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 merciful and mighty God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. We are to praise God's great name. But secondly, in our songs, we should proclaim God's great deeds. Not only are we to praise God's name for who He is, but we're to proclaim what God has done, the great deeds that He has done. And, and we praise these great deeds, it says here, that make His enemies cringe, that make them tremble in fear before Him. Now, verse 4 follows up these three commands with the response. What is the response to these commands? What is the response of those who are called to shout and to sing and to say to God? They bow down. They bow down in worship. They sing praises to His name. Now, some people wonder, and I've had people ask me this before, why sing? Why sing, David? Why do we have to sing in worship? Why do we stand up and sing? Why do we have to use music? You know, why do we have this organ and this piano? You know, it's interesting. The only other place I can think of where people stand up and sing while an organ plays is at a baseball game, right? Why do we do that in worship? Why do we stand and sing? Is it really necessary for me to move my mouth and to try to make vocal sounds in order to worship God? Well, in their concise book, I highly recommend it, it's called Sing, How We Worship Transforms Our Life, Family, and Church. Keith and Kristen Getty, whose songs we sing here from time to time, they give three reasons why we should sing. And I, I thought it was so good I wanted to share these three reasons. The first reason that we should sing is we're created to sing. You may not know that. But it's amazing how music and singing are hardwired into the human brain. There have been some fascinating studies conducted on the effects that music has on people's brains and even their bodies. Music therapy is a real thing. It really can help people to heal and to deal with stress and anxiety and depression. Music affects us on levels that we can't even begin to understand. They've done studies on preborn children responding to music in the womb. They'll even dance and move their mouths to the lyrics. It's truly amazing. Nobody has to tell you that children love music, right? They love to sing. They, they, they respond so positively to music. So, of course, it makes sense that singing comes so natu naturally. Now, that doesn't mean you're good at it. No matter how good you might be at it, it's still something you can do and you probably like to do. Now, maybe it's singing in the shower or while you're mowing the yard or out on the boat fishing or driving the car, you know, when nobody else can hear you. But most people like to sing. You know, you might whistle or hum a tune or beat, you know, a beat out on your, on your desk with your pen. You know, but we all have this innate desire to make music, to make rhythm. And the reason for that, I think, is because we're made in the image of God. God loves music. God loves to sing. In fact, Zephaniah 3.17 uh, depicts God rejoicing over us with singing. It says that God rejoices over you with singing. 
Time and again, the Psalms talk about the heavens and the earth singing God's praise. It talks about the trees and the rivers clapping their hands. So if you've ever thought that we shouldn't clap our hands in worship, well, the psalm says that if you don't, the rivers and the trees will. They will clap their hands. It talks about the mountains singing with joy to God. So we are created to sing. Secondly, we're commanded to sing. That's what we see right here in Psalm 66. It's commanding us to sing. Paul gives instruction for Christians in the specific kinds of singing and the attitude we should have when we sing. He says in Colossians 3.16 that we are to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And how are we to sing them? He doesn't say anything about how well you sing it, being on tune, having rhythm. He doesn't say that. We're to sing it what? With thankfulness in our hearts to God. That's what matters most. Matthew tells us that after the Last Supper, Jesus and His disciples, before they left and went to the Garden of Gethsemane, they did what? They, they sang. They sang a hymn. So we are commanded to sing. Jesus even gives us an example. And then thirdly, we're compelled to sing. We're compelled. Did you know the first recorded speech, the first recorded human speech in the Bible was a love song? Here God creates Adam. Adam wakes up. God presents Eve to Adam. And you know what Adam does? Adam sings a song. He says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Adam was so struck by Eve's beauty that he was compelled to sing. And people have been doing that ever since. You know, I mean, singing love songs, writing love songs. And when we are struck with powerful emotions, when we are in awe at great beauty or love, we sing about it. The Gettys write in their book, they said our motivation to sing comes from so much more than ourselves, our likes, our comfort levels, our musical tastes and preferences. Intrinsically, they say, it's driven by the one who died and was raised. It's driven by a heartfelt desire to convey gospel truth. Worship that makes His praise glorious is worship that sings. Secondly, it's worship that shares. It shares. We can't keep that kind of joy and gladness to ourselves. No one shouts a joyful cry of victory by themselves, do they? It's kind of sad. It's so much more fun to shout, Go Vols! or sing Rocky Top in Neyland Stadium than it is at home. <laughs> or surrounded by Georgia fans. You know, it's just so much better in Neyland Stadium. How much more should worship be shared with others? If you notice, in the second and third stanzas of Psalm 66, it uses the plural, it uses plural language. It says, for example, in verse 8, Praise our God. He has preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping, indicating that worship is corporate. Worship is done in community with other people. We worship God together. But the last two stanzas use the singular. In verse 13, I will come to your temple and fulfill my vows to you. Verse 16, come, listen, all you who fear God, let me tell you what He has done for me. So yes, we worship God together corporately, but worship is also something we do individually. It's something we do personally based on our relationship with God. 
In the first stanza here that we've read, worship is on a global scale. All nations are called to make God's praise glorious. But the next two stanzas, verses 4 through 12, they narrow worship down to the national level, focusing on thanksgiving and praise for how God has dealt specifically with Israel. And then later in the fourth and fifth stanzas, verses 13 through 20, it focuses even more narrow down to the individual level. Let me tell you what God has done for me. So what this means is that worship is multidimensional. It's both a private matter, but it should also be done publicly with others as well. We worship God as individuals based on our personal walk with Jesus Christ, but we should also gather together to worship God as a family of faith. Worship longs to be shared. It's like the best news that you've ever heard. And you just can't wait to tell others so they can rejoice with you. It's like a celebration, a party that you're going to. And you want your family and friends to come with you. The more the merrier. In fact, twice the psalmist here invites other people to join him in this worship celebration. And he invites two different groups of people. The first group we see in verses 5 and 6. He invites those on the outside. He's looking at those outside the community of Israel. And he's inviting them. Look at verse 5 and 6. Come and see what God has done. How awesome His works in man's behalf. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the waters on foot. Come, let us rejoice in Him. What a great invitation for those who are lost for those who are unchurched, for those who are far from God, what if we approached the people that we know and said, you have to come to church with me and hear all the great things that God is doing. Come and see what God has done for you. That's the invitation we see here. That's an invitation we should be extending to our families and our friends and our neighbors and our classmates and our co-workers. But then in verses 8 and 16, we see he also is inviting those on the inside. He's inviting his fellow Jews. Look in verse 8. Praise our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. And then in verse 16, come and listen, all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he has done for me. This is an invitation not to the lost, but to those who fear God, to the people of God. It's a reminder that we all need to gather together and listen to each other's testimonies to celebrate together God's goodness and grace in our midst. In Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, it talks about this. It commands us to consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Worship must be shared. If we're to make God's praise glorious, we must also have worship that sees. Look with me at verses 5 through 7. Come and see what God has done. How awesome His works in man's behalf. He turned sea into dry land. They passed through the waters on foot. Come, let us rejoice in Him. He rules forever by His power. His eyes watch the nations. Let not the rebellious rise up against Him. This specific invitation is for people outside the community of faith, to come and see God's glorious and powerful deeds. You see, worship for the Jewish people was a way to testify 
to God's active role in their history. It was a wonderful testimony to the nations, specifically about the Exodus. That's what he talks about, the sea turning into dry land. He's talking about Israel crossing the Red Sea. And for the Jewish people, that crossing the Red Sea came to symbolize the entire Exodus account. So he's saying, come and see what God has done for us, His salvation of His people. Now, as Christians, we have an even better salvation story to share. We have a far richer testimony, one that speaks not just to one nation, but to all peoples on the earth. The story we have to sing is a story that anyone can become part of. It's the story that says that God so loved the world. He so loved you and me that no matter what we have done, no matter our sin, no matter our wickedness and rebellion, He sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and to be raised from the dead so that if we put our faith and trust in Him, we might have everlasting life. That's the song we have to sing. That's the story that we have to invite people to come and see. And just as the psalmist invites the surrounding nations to see what God has done for Israel, we should, we should invite our surrounding community. We should invite them to come and see what God has done for everyone through the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, before His crucifixion, He said that when He is lifted up from the earth, He would draw all people to Himself. And He was talking about His death on the cross. Earlier, Jesus compared Himself on the cross to that serpent. Remember the bronze serpent that Moses had made and He stuck it on a pole and stuck it in the middle of the camp because the people had been rebellious. They'd sinned against God and God sent these poisonous snakes. And whenever somebody was bit, if they just looked to the serpent lifted high, they would be saved. And Jesus is saying that when He is lifted high, He will draw all people to Himself. And when we look to Jesus for salvation, He forgives us. He cures us from the poison that comes into our hearts from that old serpent, the devil. And He saves us. So when we sing of the power of the cross, when we sing, oh, the wonderful cross, when we sing about the blood of Christ that cleanses us of all our sins, when we exalt Jesus and His sacrificial atoning death for us, when we do that, we are helping people see the great love and mercy of our amazing God so that they will want to come to Him and rejoice. Amen? Did you know that 80% of what our brain knows comes from our vision? 80% of what your brain knows, it learned through your eyes. Now that's kind of scary when you consider what people watch on TV these days, right? and what they're looking at on their computers and their iPads and their phones. But that's also why we do more than just sing and listen to words in worship. Worship has to be multisensory. Elements like baptism, the Lord's Supper, candles on the Advent wreath, the, the different color vestments that we put out, the, the cross and the, and the cloths that we put on the corner, the crosswalk on, on, on Good Friday the Easter lilies, the poinsettias, the reason that we use all of these visual elements is they help us to see the story. They speak to us in a different way. Worship that makes God's praise glorious has to be worship that not only hears, but it sees, it tastes, it smells, it touches. It's multisensory. It's an experience. And it's one that we invite the world to come and to see. Worship that makes His praise glorious 
It's also worship that shouts. Can I get an amen? amen. Yeah. It's worship that shouts. Look with me at verse 1 again, and then at verses 8 through 12. Shout with joy to God, all the earth. That's the very first command. The very first word in this psalm is shout. Now, we may not be as bad as our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, whom I love and respect. And they would, they would appreciate the joke. But we as Baptists here at First Baptist Church, we can be pretty, uh, pretty staid. We can be pretty uh, serious and solemn. But this psalm tells us to do what? Shout! And look at verses 8 through 12. Praise our God, O peoples. Let the sound of His praise be heard. We're not to whisper it. Keep it to ourselves. Be kind of embarrassed about it. Let them be heard. Let them be heard. People walk by the street down here. You know what they should hear? They should hear music. They should hear amen. They should hear the Word of God preached. Let the praise of God be heard. He has preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping. For you, O God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water. You brought us to a place of abundance. You're to shout. Now this call to shout, the Hebrew word there, it's a cry of adoration. It's like shouting, long live the king. Or it's like chanting, USA, USA. Or it's like saying, go Vols. Or go dogs. Okay, there you go. I fine. I said it. it it's, a, it's a cry of adoration. It, it's born out of love and joy and excitement. And it also that Hebrew word is used to refer to a battle cry of victory. A battle cry of victory. Now the psalmist here in verses 9 through 12, he follows up. Well, actually go back with me at verses 5 through 7. He follows up this invitation to first reflect on what God has done in the past. Verses 5 through 7. Let's reflect on what God has done in the past. He saved us. He brought us through the waters on dry land, right? But then in verses 8 through 12, he's rejoicing over what God is doing in the present. And it's especially important for us to shout with joy to God in the midst of our times of distress. Verses 8 through 12 talks about a season of difficulty that the psalmist and God's people particularly were facing. No matter the tests and the trials and the difficulties that face them, they can shout with joy because they know that God has preserved their lives in the past. God has kept their feet from slipping into the grave. And so they have every reason to praise God even in the midst of difficulties. There's a band called City Harmonic, a Christian band, and they have a song called Praise the Lord. And the second verse of that song says, Praise the Lord with the world on your shoulders. Praise the Lord when it seems too hard. Praise the Lord because in every moment, Jesus Christ is Lord. Even in the middle of the long, dark night, there is always grace enough today to praise the Lord. Amen. Like I said, that Hebrew word for shout for joy, it's the shout of victory after winning the battle. So when we are tested and we come out at the end purified, shout with joy to God. When we're released from prison and we taste freedom again, shout with joy to God. 
when the burden is lifted off our backs and we come through the fire and the water to a place of abundant provision and peace, shout with joy to God. Amen? Stop for a moment and consider all the reasons you have today to shout with joy to God. Because when we really stop and contemplate all the many gifts, all the miracles, big and small, all the answered prayers, all the ways that God is so good, you won't be able to just whisper it. You won't be able just to say it half-hearted. You can't help but shout and laugh and sing. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Amen. Worship that makes God's praise glorious is worship that sings and shares and shouts. It helps others to see who God is and what God has done. But it's also worship that sacrifices. Sacrifices. Look at verses 13 through 15. I will come to your temple with burnt offerings and fulfill my vows to you. Vows my lips promised and my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. I will sacrifice fat animals to you and an offering of rams. I will offer bulls and goats. Now, here the psalmist is coming to the temple to fulfill his vows to God, right? He was in trouble. He was in difficulty. He cried out to God. He said, God, if you see me through this, I will give you offerings and I will praise your name. And so God has seen him through. He's come through the waters and the fire. So now he's coming to the temple to fulfill these promises to worship and praise God through sacrifices. Now, as Christians, we know that we no longer are required to make animal sacrifices, thank goodness. Hebrews 10 explains the purpose that the Old Testament sacrificial system had and how it pointed to Jesus as the fulfillment of those sacrifices. In fact, in Hebrews 10, 10 through 14, it says, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, talk about Jesus, when this priest had offered for all time, once, sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And then in verse 18, he says, And where, there have been, and, and, and where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. We don't have to bring sacrifices. You don't have to come on Sunday morning with your lamb in tow. Don't have to do that. But later on, in Hebrews 13, the author comes to this conclusion. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess His name and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So while we are not required to make sacrifices to cleanse us from our sins, we have an even greater reason to sacrifice, not out of duty, not for ourselves, not to earn anything, but to sacrifice out of joy and love and gratitude for what God has already done for us. We should continually offer God the sacrifice of praise. Our lips 
should constantly profess and praise His holy name. These are sacrifices that still praise the Lord and honor Him. But how can praising God be sacrificial? When you think about a sacrifice, you think about, well, it costs you something, right? To sacrifice is to give something up. You know, you've got this lamb at home. Well, that lamb costs you something. So to sacrifice it is a loss to you. How can we sacrifice God in our praise? Well, it's most definitely sacrificial for our brothers and sisters who risk their lives, their families, and their fortunes to gather and worship God in places like Iran, North Korea, China or Nigeria. That's sacrificial for them. When's the last time it cost you something to come worship with others? When's the last time you risked your life or your job simply to come to church and worship Jesus? Most American Christians won't even give up a few hours on a Sunday morning to worship the Lord, much less put their lives at risk. Being a worshiper of Jesus should be costly. If it isn't costing us something to worship and follow Jesus, then we need to double-check who it is we're worshiping and following. Because Jesus tells us it will cost us. He tells us to count that cost before deciding to follow Him. In 2 Samuel 24, David was commanded by God to offer sacrifice. And so he goes out in Jerusalem and he finds a field. He wants to buy that field and build an altar, burn a fire and sacrifice some bulls. And when he goes to buy that field, the man who owns it says, No, David, you're the king. Let me give it to you. I want to give you this land. I'll even give you the materials for the altar. I'll even give you the bulls for the sacrifice. And listen to how David responded. He said, no, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Worship should and will cost us something if it means anything to us. When we come to gather on a Sunday morning, it does cost us. It costs us our time, our energy, our efforts. You're here right now. It's costing you the lost opportunity to go do something else and be somewhere else, isn't it? It is costing you something. And you may even find that the Sundays that really cost you something the most to come to worship, the Sundays where you really had to weigh the decision and say no to one thing, to be here, I think those are the Sundays that God blesses the most. Those are the Sundays that stand out in your mind as the most powerful, worshipful worshipful encounters with God. Because it costs you something to be here. But another way that worshiping together can cost us happens once we're here and our worship time begins. See, we come together from different backgrounds and traditions, don't we? Some, Some of you were raised... Methodist or Episcopalian or Protestant or some of you didn't grow up in church at all. We come from different backgrounds and traditions. We have varying musical tastes and opinions and preferences. I mean, you put all those people together in a worship service, well, let's just say things can get interesting, right? There may be times you hear a prayer that uses language that you might not necessarily use. Or there may be times when we sing a song that isn't really your style. That's what it means to be part of a community as diverse as the church. And yeah, you might have to make some sacrifices on your part. You might have to give a little of yourself. You might have to be uncomfortable for a few minutes for the sake of someone else. See, when a song isn't working for you, praise God all the more because that probably means that it is working for someone else who just happens to be different than you. 
We need to offer our worship as a sacrifice instead of demanding others to sacrifice for our pleasure or contentment. Whether your style is contemporary or traditional, whether you like drums and guitars or just organs and pianos, we need to resist the tendency to make worship a self-pleasing act because worship is all about pleasing God, not pleasing me or pleasing the person next to you. Amen? So if a song or a prayer or even the sermon isn't quite doing it for you and helping you connect with God in worship this Sunday, pray that it is resonating with someone else. Give thanks and rejoice that we have a church that's seeking to reach people from all walks of life. That we have a multi-general congregation where children can worship next to their grandparents. And in that moment, you offer to God your sacrifice of praise. Now, even though worship should be sacrificial, and it should cost us something, we should never see worship as a duty to fulfill, as a chore or something to check off our list. Worship should never be dreary, dreaded, or endured. Rather, worship that makes God's praise glorious is worship that savors. It savors. Look with me at verse 16. Come and listen. All you who fear God, let me tell you what He has done for me. I cried out to Him with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened and heard my voice in prayer. Praise be to God who has not rejected my prayer or withheld His love from me. Earlier in this psalm, the congregation invited the world to come and see what God had done for Israel. But here the psalmist is personally inviting his fellow God-fearers to come and listen to what God has specifically done in his life. Basically, he wants to tell them how God has answered his prayers. See, in his time of need, the psalmist cried out to God for help. He didn't, but he didn't just treat God as, a, as, a, as an emergency you know, spare tire in the trunk or a 911 call. God's praise was always on his tongue. Now, in, he, in, in, in Psalms, in Hebrew poetry, you've got this thing called parallelism. So look with me at verse uh, 17. When it says, I cried out to him with my mouth, his praise was on my tongue, that, that's linking these two lines together. Mouth and tongue, cried out and praised, are basically seen as the same thing. Spiritual maturity holds both praise and intercession together in the same hand as two sides of the same coin. We can bring our requests to God because of our relationship with God, because of who He is and all He has promised to do for us. We can praise God in the storm, in the flames, and as we walk through the dark valleys, even as we cry to Him for deliverance and provision and guidance, we can praise Him. We savor our relationship with the Savior. And I think that's why the psalmist especially focuses on this imagery of the mouth and the tongue. He says, rather than cherishing sin in his heart, which, by the way, that gets in the way of that relationship, yeah? It keeps us from praising God and trusting God and relying on God, doesn't it? So if you cherish sin in your heart, you're not going to cry out to God. You're not going to praise God. You're not going to make His praise glorious. So he says, I could have cherished sin in my heart, but rather than doing that, he savored the Lord's presence 
and promises. He allowed the praise of God to linger on His tongue. He savored the sweet taste of worship. He wasn't looking at His watch. Are we almost done? Psalm 34 writes another invitation to worship. To taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Nothing is sweeter than meditating on the goodness of God, the love of Christ, the faithfulness of God's promises, the truth of God's Word. No matter your attitude or what you're dealing with in life, if you spend a little time in the presence of God, I think you'll agree with the psalmist who said, How sweet are thy words unto my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Now this final blessing here in verse 20. Praise be to God who has not rejected my prayer or withheld His love from me. It echoes God's covenant promise to David in 2 Samuel 7.15 when God promised that He would never take His love away from David and His throne. It echoes God's covenant promises with Abraham and Israel that He would be their God and would bless the world through them. Even though He knew they would prove faithful, faithless to Him, He would be faithful to them. And it foreshadows Jesus' covenant promise with everyone who trusts Him by faith that He will never leave us nor forsake us, but that He will empower us and be present with us even to the ends of the world. God will not withhold His love from you if you come to Him in faith. If like Chase and Abby have done, if you turn from your sin and ask for His forgiveness and grace, that is a prayer that God will never reject. Praise be to God. Amen? Maybe this morning you need to come and cry out to the Lord for salvation today. And if that's what you need to do, as I said from the baptistry, here in a moment, you're going to have an opportunity to do that. But, but let me do something else. Let me invite you. Just as the psalmist was inviting people to come and worship, let me invite you. If you are a guest with us, maybe you've been worshiping with us for a while now, we invite you to come and to join with us, to, to become a part of this people of God in this place as we together seek to encourage one another and spur one another on in love and good deeds, as we joyfully raise our voices and worship to God, as we share with each other the good things that God is doing in our lives, we invite you to come and unite with this church and to continue to worship and praise with us. Whatever God is speaking to your heart, hope you'll come and respond today.